Right, so tonight, um, it always feels better when you know a bit more about who's in the room, right? Feels different now, a little bit. Um, and also, one of the best things that um, about Sold, um, when I've asked a lot of the girls that have gone through the program and just been around for a while, like, what's been the most helpful for you? What's been awesome? Thinking they're going to talk about our wonderful programming and training and, like, classes and teachers. And they say, oh, having friends, like, to grow with, like, real good girlfriends that are inspired and, like, committed to their own growth personally, spiritually. And that's really what I feel Sold becomes. Because there's great learning the rest of the week here, but it's not just girl, girls' night. So girls' night is really it's a different feel, different vibe. You meet high-quality people that are really here in, in a serious way just to, like, develop themselves and actualize their potential. And it's just different quality. So I think it's worth spending the time, you know, just seeing who's in the room and saying hi. But what I thought would be helpful also for us to discuss tonight was this idea that everyone trips up against at some point, some longer than others, um, and there's very little around about it, which is what I found when I went through my own process um, as a Balchuva myself, not knowing anything about Judaism, far less than all of you, um, I, I assume, from having spoken to a few of you. Um, Sydney, growing up in Sydney, Australia, not knowing anything, full, full, the most out possibly furthest out type of lifestyle you can imagine as a Jew. Um, I mean, I was really like a non-Jew, but I just knew I was Jewish, right? That Jew thing where you just feel a bit different, but you don't know why, but like you keep ignoring it. And I really didn't know anything about it. And at some point when you learn about Judaism, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've heard it from a lot of people and it was my experience. You learn about concepts and you're like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. That's amazing. And then you're like, wait, what? I have to do, I have to do what? Like, no, 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 <laughs> no, right, like, I like my life, thank you very much, right, like, oh, but that's so beautiful, and that's so deep, and it's so, I so understand that, that's amazing, but that, oh, no way, no way, absolutely not, I can't do that, right, and you keep bumping up against things that, overall, you love the wisdom, and you, and you, and you, and you deeply understand certain parts, and there's other parts that you're like, I don't know if I could do this whole thing, because there's no way in a million years I can do that, like, whatever that is, for every person, that is different, right, whatever that is. So then you become, it's like an internal struggle about how do I resolve the parts that I resonate with and I love and I really get deeply. And then there's all these other things, especially the rules where like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't like it. I don't want to give up that for that, right? There's all these types of things going on at all different levels. And then how do I possibly negotiate this whole path of Judaism? If I'm Jewish and there's a Jewish path and I believe so much of it's true and I believe so much is wise and so much is deep and so much is like real wisdom for my life and then there's all these other parts that I don't know what to do with and I don't know how to relate to it and do I have to do it all? And like what if I don't do it all? And at least, is, this, is this making sense? Like at some point you've been asking these questions. So I don't want to address tonight. We're not addressing like what you should do. That's a personal decision. We can discuss it one-on-one. -on -one. We can see where you're at, what's inspiring to you, what's not inspiring, what, su what support you have in your life. What you, like, to take on things when you don't have support in your life is, is, is at all. Or you have the opposite. Sometimes you have parents fighting you. No, you're not going to Israel. right? And then wanting to do more than... You know, it's a very delicate balance. It's very personal and it's delicate and it's important. And it's important to keep yourself intact um, and to be, keep you, you. So you... You know, I joke with people who know that my brother became observant before me and I freaked out because I thought he joined a cult um, because I knew nothing about it. I was a practicing psychologist. I had my own practice. I was on the Today Show. I was doing, like, lots of cool things. And, like, I knew what life was about. Thank you very much. You know, like, that's... I was a psychologist. Like, we, we have it together. We understand. Right? A social worker. Like, you know, like, it's, it's that kind of feeling. Like, you understand people at a deeper level. 
And then my brother was off doing this cult thing. Like, what, what on earth was he doing? I couldn't get hold of him Friday night. I couldn't get, you know, go out to dinner with him anymore at restaurants. Like, in Sydney, there's no, basically no kosher restaurant. So I freaked out. And um, I couldn't argue intelligently about anything. So I had to educate myself. And, um, you know, at some point, you could treat Judaism like a cult. And I've seen people do this. Meaning... You can th just throw yourself into it and accept everything blindly and lose who you were before and then like suddenly become this new thing, like religious or observant or whatever you want to call it, and lose who you were. And that's just as unhealthy, right? That's not what it's about. It's not what you're... You're born into the family you're meant to be born into. You're who you are because you're meant to be who you are. You're not meant to just do that. That's not the ideal. So people create this ideal in their head of what they think they should be because they now believe a system to be true. And they don't really know how to navigate and negotiate that or even relate to it in a way of like, how can I be me and still, still negotiate this path? So that's what I felt would be worth discussing in depth today and looking a little bit into also the Torah and into a source, one specific source, um, that we know that when you want to understand something deeply in Judaism, there's two places you go. Anyone know where? Gomorrah is the oral expression of, of possibly one of these places. There's two aspects or two things we look at to understand the deeper concept of something. Torah. What, where, what, what, what about the Torah and the concept? Where would I look if I want to understand a concept in the Torah? Commentary. Commentary on? The Talmud. In the Talmud, yes. The first place is mentioned. So the first place a concept is mentioned in the Talmud or the Torah which is expounded upon in the Gomorrah, the oral Torah, which is also given commentary to, like you're all right in a way. Um, the, the first place it's mentioned, discuss, it reveals the essence of that concept. The other place we often look is into the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew word. So whatever the word is, if you break it down into its roots of Hebrew, which is hard when you don't know Hebrew, I don't know so much Hebrew either, but the, ones that, the stuff I've learned has been mind-blowing, um, then you, uh, it reflects what the essence is. So I'll give you an example. Let's start with halacha because we're talking about laws. The word halacha itself, halacha, we translate in English as, what's the standard word for halacha in English? Law. Law. It's the law. It's the Jewish law is the word halacha. So you go, okay, so law, if you look at the root of the word halacha, it should be something like rule or limitation, right, restriction. But really the root of halacha, anyone know what the root word of halacha is? Halach. Huh? Close. Drop the hay. Lech. lech. Anyone know what the word lech means? No. To go. What? Law. Rule. The root of that word means to go. Does it even make sense? You, get, you hear the problem? You're hearing the problem? The word halacha we translate as law. So the root of it you would think would mean, the root word in that Hebrew word lech, would mean rule, limitation, law, some sort of restriction. But it doesn't. It means, the op it means to go. It means like to go. Right? The hay at the beginning, which is what Amanda was picking up, ha, ha, halacha, is just the word the. So, halacha, if you literally translate it into its broken down words, is the going, which in a, in a noun is the pathway. So, the halacha itself, when you crack it open in the Hebrew, it means the pathway. The pathway to where? Your deepest understanding of yourself. Right. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> the, world of, the pathway to the world of connection. It's yes. a different class. 
pathway to actualizing your truest potential, the pathway to your highest self, the pathway to connecting to God. It's the pathway to basically expanding and becoming your, the highest self that you can be, which is totally, again, already just in the word, not the, the impression we have of halacha, right? So the question is, well, that's a big jump. So how do I get from there to where I am and what I'm doing and how do I feel different, right? Um, the word, for example, dog, this is the beauty of the Hebrew yeah. language, is kelev. If you break down the word kelev, anyone know what it means? Whole heart. Yeah, like a heart. Ke is like like. Lev is, is heart. So you look at the essence of a dog and their pure compassion and loyalty. That's what a dog's known for, right? Isn't that beautiful? And the Hebrew, when you crack it open, the, cons, the essence of that thing, how it was created in, in Judaism, in the world, is the name, right? It says that Adam went around and actually named all the animals by looking into the pure soul of the animal and naming the, the animal by the essence, Right, and that translates to us when we name our children nowadays. It says that it's the last form of prophecy, that parents will get a name and it's, they're getting it from the essence of the child. And we don't know why, but they often name the child that exact essence. And I have to, I have to say that, just in my own experience, my parents were absolutely not religious in the slightest at all. I don't know why, but they gave us Hebrew names. That's the, like, the only thing. And that Hebrew name I learned at the age of 29 years old, like what it actually meant deeply. I didn't even like the sound of it. Right, Yocheved. Like the ch, forget it, right? Yochevet, okay, what is that? I didn't know what it meant. I found out later she's, you know, mother of Moses and that she was ended up being like a midwife and she, she ended up swaddling the babies. So that's what I was doing as a therapist, practicing for so long, was in a way therapeutically swaddling people to help them. I mean, there were so many parallels with the essence of what that was. Mm -hmm. And that when you break down the name Yochevet, I mean, if you look into your Hebrew name, we can talk about it later, but it's amazing how people resonate with the Hebrew name. So it's the last line of prophecy. Uh, in the world. So okay. You're supposed to name the baby until you see the baby? Yeah. You're not meant to. So what about a boy baby? What, what? Like any boy, any girl or boy baby? Yeah. I mean, not, it's not like it's wrong not to do that, but like people who are trying to align with the Torah as much as possible, they have a few names in their head of what they like, but they don't name it till they see the baby. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay. So what's the feeling of uh, idea of if, I, if I'm to follow all of halakha, the feeling I'm going to feel is, what's the fear? What, what's the feeling? I'm gonna, what's going to happen to me if I feel like I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to do all of halakha? Overwhelm yourself. Overwhelm yourself. What else? Restricted. Restricted. Mm -hmm. What am I going to lose? Segregate yourself. Oh, segregate yourself, yep. What am I going to lose? Your identity. Your identity. Mm -hmm. What else? Everything that you know. Everything that you know. Freedom. I'm going to lose my freedom, essentially, my identity. I'm, going to, I'm just going to lose my freedom. I can't do what I want to do anymore. Like, I just have to follow this rule book. It's going to be suffocating, restrictive. So let's look a little bit into this concept of feeling free, feeling like I want to do what I want to do, and look into the word also for freedom in Hebrew. So if we look at... We open, can you open in here, in a sitter, to Mincha um, for Shabbat? At the, at the end of Mincha for Shabbat, the Mincha for Sabbath, there's um, Perkei Avos, which is Ethics of Our Fathers. It's just a place to get the text. This is Perkei Avos, but it says Maharal. All right, so just to go chapter 6, verse 2 in the Perkei Avos for you. And here, chapter 6, verse 2, it's the last paragraph in chapter 6, verse 2. Here. It's up here. It's in English. Do you have it? No. Mincha, no, Mincha. <laughs> For Shabbat, this book, Chapter 3, Chapter 4, 
chapter 5, chapter 6, verse 2. Just want to flick to 6. 6, yep. 1, 2, a second side, a second paragraph, yeah, tablets. 6, verse 2, everyone got it? We're starting from the last paragraph where it says the tablets are God's handiwork. Do you see that? Do you have it, Sophia? Not, it's in, I, after, after, in Mincha, for the Sabbath, at the back of Mincha, there's Perkei Avas. Well, you're in regular mental, hang on. Oh, that's why. We're in regular mental, not your fault. This is very confusing. Actually, all have different books. Yeah, but it goes hand in hand. So he doesn't have the page on. Oh, wait, maybe this is weekday. No? Yes. Yes, that's why. Here, there's another one. Ah. It says, does anyone want to read the last paragraph? The tablets are God's handiwork. The tablets are God's handiwork, and the script was God's script. Uh, Haras engraved on the tablets. Do not read Haras engraved, but Haras freedom. For you can have no freer man than one who engages in the study of the Torah. And anyone who engages in the study of the Torah becomes elevated. As it is said, from Manhattan... Matana. Oh. <laughs> totally, totally understandable. Matana. Matana. This really makes Man. sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from Matana to Nahalio, and from Nahalio to Vamos. Great. I know that was, that was tough. Okay, so what's going on here? This is a this is a Mishnah. This is an oral an oral law. It's talking about the tablets, God meaning the, the Ten Commandments. The tablets are God's handiwork. And the script was God's script, and it says the word in Hebrew, charos, right? Charos here it inter interprets as engraved on the ta tablets. The script was engraved into the tablets. Very nice. And then it says, by the way, don't read it as charos, engraved, but instead charos, as freedom. So you see charos and charos are the same exact letters in Hebrew. The only change is one vowel. So don't read it as charos, read it as charos, for you can have no freer man than one who engages in the study of Torah. That's so weird, this is the opposite of what we said. We just said, no, once you're actually following Torah, you're kind of bound by it and it feels restrictive. And here it's actually not only saying, don't worry about it, it's saying it's the opposite, you're actually free. So this is totally like a paradox in a way. Well, what's going on here? Then it says, and anyone who engages in the study of Torah becomes elevated, as it is said, from matanah to nachlil, nachlil to vamos, Matanah, these are places, these are actual physical places, they were cities, but they're also deeper meanings. What does matanah mean? Gift. Gift. When I give someone a present, I give them a matanah. So it becomes, goes from, when you start learning about your Judaism, it goes from being at first like, this is a gift, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is, in my, this is my heritage, right? To a nachliel, I, I skipped a little bit, nachliel literally means feeling like it's your heritage, it's mine. It's not just a gift that I learned about, oh that's so wise and nice and oh, that's lovely. It becomes mine. And the Nachliel to Bamos means that I go from feeling like it's not only is it my inheritance, but Bamos means the highest of heights. I can actually elevate myself in the highest way. So it, it, it becomes a journey that I end up following on my own journey, and it can, leads me to freedom, which is so weird because we feel like it's the opposite. Okay. So when we look at freedom, 
How would we define freedom according to our definitions? Free will. Freedom is free will. Free will to do what? What you want to do. Free will to do whatever you want to do, right? Free will to do what you want to do. So I want to be free to do what I want. I want to free, be free to do what I like, all right? I want to be free. And if something stops me from doing that, I feel trapped. That's essentially how we relate. Do I feel restricted? I feel trapped. Now I feel like I can't do what I want to do. So it's very interesting to note that there is not one single place in the Torah where this concept of freedom is mentioned in this way. There's not one place where freedom is defined as free, being free to do what you want to do. It's very interesting. Like whatever you want to do is just like a free-for-all. That would be like anarchy or chaos, you know. So, but there is a concept of freedom in the Torah. It's mentioned it now. It mentions it around other, other places. Again, if we want to understand a concept of freedom, where do we look again? We look at the first place that is mentioned in a big way. Like the first place is really mentioned freedom, that we were free. Does anyone know where that is? No. Where, in the Jewish story. In the, in the Jewish story. Huh? Yes. When the nation was taken out of Egypt. Good one. Yeah, we've got very, very smart class here. When the nation was, was taken out of Egypt, we were freed from being slaves. slaves. Were we freed, when we're talking about freedom, were we freed to say, okay, off you go and have a party? No. Do whatever you want. Party hard. Great. I'm God. I love you. Let's go. What, what happened? We were freed then for what? And that, that was all preparation for? for getting the Torah. God gave us the Torah. To get the Torah. So there was no such thing as freed just for the sake of fun and partying and doing whatever you want. There was only a sense of being freed from slavery, which was a low level of operating, obviously, and functioning, to serve something higher, right? To be in service to, which means there's always a type of it being in service to something, but we get to choose what we want to be in service to. Does anyone know the holiday that marks this freedom? What's the holiday we currently celebrate in the year that marks this freedom for, of, for out of Egypt? Passover. Yes, Passover. Yes, Pesach. When we read the Haggadah and everyone's like, oh my gosh, how, what time is it? And I want to eat. I'm sorry, right? <laughs> that we're meant to be celebrating this particular experience of freedom, but it's not about a historical story. It's meant to be about my current situation. There's a whole beautiful idea in Judaism that every holiday has a spiritual power that if you know how to tap into that holiday and unlock it, you can ride that spiritual power for yourself to transform yourself. So if you understand, like if you go through the holidays, oh my gosh, this is so boring, I have to do the customs, I have to sit there and just eat, how much matzah do I have to eat, oh my God. Right, if you just go through the holidays like that, just looking at the basic, again, halacha, the basic halacha, it can feel annoying, it can feel irritating, it can feel restrictive, it can feel like just get me through this family dinner and get me home, thank you very much, so I can watch, I don't know, what do you watch nowadays? Like, what's, what's, a, what's a scandal? Yeah. Yeah, is that good? I'm on Downton Abbey. I'm like a dog. Downton Abbey. Is that good? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so I'm in? Oh my God. Okay. Um, down, I love Downton Abbey. Um, you know, like if, if you just relate to the holidays from that level, so then it's very superficial. It's very, um, it, it's very tedious. If you understand what's going on spiritually, you can unlock the depths of the holiday and actually transform yourself through the holiday. So example, for, for Pesach, we're talking about going from being a slave to certain things that keep us trapped ultimately, I mean, actually, the, the idea of this is beautiful because the word for Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, Mitzrayim, really means narrow. 
So it's, it's about being freed from our own narrowness, our own restrictiveness internally, that how we keep ourselves small, how we keep ourselves little, how we don't let ourselves grow and transform. We have All of us have our certain habits and, and familiar patterns that keep us limited. And Passover, if you learn to ride the wave, so to speak, spiritual wave, you can learn to, it, it, it says that it can give you a help to fly in certain patterns you want to break around Passover, if you know how to tap in and work with that. So it's about being freed from our own Mitzrayim, our own inner Egypt, which is our own feeling of being trapped in order to become free to serve something higher. We were freed on a national level to be free to slaves to serve something higher, and so too on an individual personal level. That's the concept that we're going for, and that's what's mentioned in the Torah as a template, a spiritual DNA for all of us for all time. So what does it mean? If we define freedom as doing whatever we like, whenever we want to, where, this is the hop. This is it. It doesn't mean you're really free. It means you're always a slave to something that you desire in that moment. You hear? You're not really free. I have a desire. Oh, I want a glass of wine. <gasps> right? Or there's a cute guy. Oh, hi. Like, or there's a chocolate cake I have to eat. Right? Whatever the desire is, if I feel like I must have that desire to gratify myself because I want it, but I feel like I'm not going to be happy unless I get it, then I'm not free. I'm completely trapped by my desire because I'm not... Do you, you hear the problem? I'm basically being run by my desires and I'm like a slave to my desires. If whatever... like, Can I tell you what's going to make me desire one thing over another thing next, in the next hour? No. I can't tell you what's going to trigger me to want something over another thing. Right? We have physical desires for comfort, for entertainment, for like sex, for power, for fame, for money, for... For, for food, for, for nice things. We have lots of desires. And those desires get triggered by environmental factors, by historical factors, by friends, by all sorts of things. Facebook, whatever you're seeing online, whatever, right? Pictures. So I have a desire, and then I feel like I want to follow that desire. Now, if I can't do it, or I somehow stop myself, then I'm going to feel trapped, but I'm not really free. I was never free. I was really a slave. So we get to, where's the free will choice? The free will choice is, what am I going to serve? Am I in it to serve myself and my desires? That's my free will choice. Or am I in it to serve something higher? Do I want to be freed from my own limited Egypt internally? To serve something higher is to become a higher person, a better person that's not driven by my desires. Make sense? When you start like repainting the paradigm of the lens that you look through, the world looks completely different. Right? And if, if, I, if I went around, we don't have time now, but if I went around the room now and said, think of someone that you admire. Right now, think of someone in your head. And I ask you, like, why do you admire them? Why do you look up to them? Someone you really are inspired by. If we boiled it down, it would be that they stand for something no matter what's going on. Meaning they're hardworking, they're kind, they do the right thing no matter what, they're honest, right? Now, all these higher qualities, they do at the expense of other desires. There's no question. You can't achieve anything great in life without sacrifice, right? So these people that we look up to are embodying the trait of being a master or, or in control of their lower desires. They don't just go off and do whatever they want to do because they've built their life into something that's magnificent that you look up to, which is usually a higher quality. That means they've mastered the ability to not just follow their desires on a whim, right? So we all strive to be that, but then when it comes to us, it's like, oh, it's hard and I don't know if you can't see through the fog sometimes. You're like, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. But you don't, we don't think about it from a bigger picture. Right. Can we do both, though? Pardon? Can we do both in some ways? You can do... what? Like, explain. 
say this is came up on my email article lot. Say you're yeah. like really like fashion, for example, and you like like the latest trends, but you want to be religious. Mm -hmm. Can you be religious and like apply your identity of like being really fashionable to one thousand percent? That's why I hired Eliza. Eliza <laughs> <laughs> is Miss like cool like fashion. I'm gonna hire her for fashion blog. Meaning. Fashion's like a superficial, obviously. No, but fashionable means like I like a certain look and I feel like it expresses me in a certain way. Right. And um, I hired you for other reasons, by the way, as well. <laughs> um, but, but, um, but it expresses who I am in a certain way, but I'm not willing to sell myself short and present myself as any kind of object or less than who I am for the sake of fashion. Yes, okay, I guess. So that's the place. Right. For, but 100%. 1,000%. In fact... Yeah, it's about also adjusting to where you're at and also what, what would make someone feel like an object in one situation would not would be different for another person. It depends on the free will range of where you're at. I don't know right. if you learned about the free will range. Did you learn about this? That every person has a free will range that you are in at any moment in your life and you're tested in that area, by the way, no matter whether you're religious or not. It's got nothing to do with it. I don't like the word religious anyway. Like, it's a very big label. I don't know when you officially become religious. Like, I don't know when that is. Like, you know, like, now I'm religious. Like, I don't know when that happens, you know. Like, you're a Jew and you're growing and there's Torah and we're following a Jewish path and, like, that's it, right? So everyone is tested at a certain level. We call, it's called your Bechira range. Bechira means your free will range. And... There is a clear indicator that you're in a test and that you're being tested in that range. Does anyone know what it is? Because if you, by the way, if you know you're in a test, you have much more likelihood of passing it, right? Mm -hmm. If you know a test is coming, you're like, right, I'm gonna pass. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass it. But if you don't know a test is there, then you might fail it just because you didn't know. Is it your two decisions? Yes. Not just two decisions. What's the feeling? Like um, when I have two decisions that I'm, it is in my Bahira range. Like it's pulling you one way. It's pulling you one way and pulling you the other way. So the key indicator that I'm being tested in my Bahira range is in my moral conflict. Moral conflict. Not, do I want chocolate ice cream or vanilla? Because I'm not in moral conflict when I choose between chocolate. Even if it's like, oh, I'm not sure, chocolate or vanilla. Like, that's not moral conflict, right? Moral conflict is, is like, I really want to do that, but I really know I should do that. But I really want to do that, and maybe I could justify it and, and intellectualize it. And the, but I really, that's quieter voice is like, but you really should do that. But I don't want to do that, right? When you're back and forth, there's some area there that's being triggered that's in your moral conflict. I worked with street kids out of psychology when I was in as working as a psychologist. And these are kids with toughest kids in and out of jail. I shared this a little bit the other night. And I, said, I mentioned this, that if they held back from an assault when they were robbing someone for money for drugs, they passed their, their test. If I assaulted someone, I would not be passing, right? Like where I'm standing versus where they're standing, that was good for them. They held themselves back from something that was natural and normal based on their environment, which wasn't their fault. They were put into that, that life. And they held back for something higher. Even though we would say, you still rob someone, right? But from a, from a true judge point of view, looking down, they did better than where they were. So it's a very fair system that you're, you're, you're judged really where you're at based on what you know, what you don't know, where you're, what you're really capable of, what you're not capable of, what's possible, right? And as opposed to everyone being pushed against this ideal perfect image of Judaism that everyone thinks yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. So it's also what opportunities you have. What opportunities did you not have? What emotional supports do you have? What was your family like? What wasn't it like? Like, it's all these things. Okay. There's no such thing as freedom. You're always a slave to something. You're always in service to something, let's say. 
So what happens when I engage Judaism and then I feel like I feel trapped? Why do I feel trapped? What, what, then what, where does this feeling come from where I feel trapped? Where I feel like I'm suffocated? This is so important. There's the, the feeling of trapped comes when I feel like I really don't want to do this, but I know I shouldn't, so I'm going to stop myself from doing it. So I really what I do is I feel like I should rip out my whole life as I know it and do all this other stuff because apparently it's true. And now I feel trapped, right? So that's unhealthy. That's an unhealthy way to approach Judaism. What should it look like and what's really going on, like what's the truth of the situation and the growth, is that you're never really trapped. You're always choosing to exchange one thing for another. And this is true across life. Forget religion and forget observance and forget... I am studying for a big exam that I value, that I want to pass. Because to get a degree, because I want a career in social work. But everyone is going out that night to the most awesome party they've been talking about for the last three months. Right? And I'm torn. I could go and have a drink and come back and study. Right? I'm really torn. At the end of the day, many people would choose to give up the party to stay home and study for a huge exam the next day on a really important exam. Would they miss it? Yes. Would they be lonely? Yes. Would they feel like, oh, right? Yes. But why are they choosing it? It's an exchange. They're giving up one thing for something else they value more. Right? Do you feel trapped doing that? No. Why? Because it's your choice. So there's something off when people address Judaism that way, as if it's not their free choice. God is not about guilt trips. That's a Jewish thing we've done to ourselves. Right? God, the Jewish guilt thing is like gone viral. Like it's not normal, right? It's just not, this is not Judaism, Jewish guilt, right? Yeah. So I agree when like somebody chooses to become religious, but what about the children who grow up religious and they aren't taught there's this other way of living? Well, they, they know it. I mean, it's all around them. So they still at some point will have to consciously always choose it. But does everyone like know, know about it? Yeah, I mean, only very certain, yeah. Okay. But they're taught from principles of understanding. Meaning if they ever feel that they're just forced to do it when they don't want to do it, usually those kids will actually go off the derf. We call it off the derf. They go and party. They go and have their own journey. And many of them choose to come back and then it's really theirs. Yeah. Right? So that does happen a lot. And the ones that go off, if you really look into a lot of their family, and then they never come back, often it was because they were very, very hurt by someone who represented the religion, usually. 95, 99. Would you say that, Eliza? Very high, I don't know, but a very high percentage of people who go off and never come back mm. is because of some emotional yeah, experience. Yeah, I yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. She grew up in that world, so she probably saw a lot more of it. You know, like, got people going on their own journey but not coming back, it's because they couldn't reconcile that someone who stood for the religion did that to them, whatever it was, hurt them. Or I know not numerous people like this, they're amazing people, but they just can't reconcile that. That's why, by the way, standing up for being a Kiddush Hashem or a Chil Hashem, when you address religious and you act religious and you treat people a certain way, you represent far more than yourself. You're representing the whole religion. I mean, you can turn someone off based on your action. It's a very big responsibility, right? Yeah. You can also turn someone on. Just an example, when we were in Israel, Tammy, who, like, on our trip, which she knows, um, so she is, it's a call when you don't um, Shomer. Nagia. Nick Shomer Nagia. But now in Judaism, the biggest thing is that you don't embarrass someone. Mm -hmm. So, like, although this, she had this, like, rule to not touch touch a man, when somebody that didn't know her reached out their hand, she, she would shake his hand. So she would shake his hand. Right. And, like, to me, that signifies how, like, 
caring for other people. She was mm -hmm. so strong about that too. Yeah, is more important than you know certain customs that people might think of as rules that can't be broken. Hundred percent. And also, the more you know the halacha, mm -hmm. and you know the sensitivity of the halacha, and you understand what where your real limit is. Right the more you can work with that. People who generally are very black and white and like judge everyone else and tell everyone to do the same thing, they understand very little about it. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very superficial understanding. So when you superficially understand something, you're, you're very rigid because you don't know what. You know, my rabbi is one of the, a very, a very um, looked up to rabbi and he allows me to, to do the most chill things that no one else ever allowed me to do when I asked him the question mm -hmm. because he understood this, this, the same thing. Like the yeah. more you know, the more you can be flexible with the situation right. and, and understand the halakha of not embarrassing someone it's and being important. sensitive is, if not more important, as important, right? As mm -hmm. me keeping my own, right? right. Okay, good, 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 good example. Um, so it's always an exchange. If I'm giving up um, my movie and my Ben and Jerry's, it's because I, wanna, I value my weight more, right? Or health more. So at any given moment in life, we're always making an exchange, always. At any moment, right now, you gave up something to be here. You gave up now, sitting at home, cozy in your PJs, on the couch, watching whatever, or eating whatever, seeing with a friend, reading a book, like whatever, you, you gave up something, right? You gave up something to be here. Why? Because you value spirituality, right? It's tough. It's cold outside. It, there's snow still on the ground. You had lots of excuses why not to be here, right? But you valued something more. So it didn't feel trapped because you valued it. So here's the key. Why on earth would you give up something in your life if you don't value what you'd be gaining instead? In Judaism. You would only look at, I mean, it's our obligation, it's very careful, I'm going to be very careful here because your Yetzirahs are all listening as well, and they're all going to use what I'm saying to now justify why you don't have to do anything, right? So the other flip of this is very dangerous, what I'm saying. But generally, you don't give up something in your life or even entertain the possibility of like keeping Shabbat or doing something else unless you value what Shabbat gives you. Unless you value what it gives you. Like, I, I love the idea of Shabbat. I love the idea of switching off digital detox 24 hours, being with myself in a deeper way, being with friends in a deeper way, not having distractions, being able to connect to, to God, being able to think more deeply, read Torah books, and, and talk about spiritual concepts for 24 hours every week. I value that more than going out for a drink. Yep, I value. I can do that Thursday night. I can do that Saturday night. I value that more. Or I value that more than just hanging out like another night. Right? I value it more. So because I value it more, I'm willing to potentially give up what a normal Friday night would have looked like. Or even start thinking about how can I be a little bit more Shabbat conscious, Shabbat oriented. Right? I, okay, I can't do all Shabbat, but I'm going to give up my phone Friday night. Just an example. These are little baby steps people take on. Right? Or I can't do it. I'll just, I won't use my phone at all on Friday night, but I, some will, sometimes will keep Shabbat, sometimes I can't keep Shabbat. But these are all the examples of baby steps, but you would only think of doing that if you value it. You hear, you hear this is a very important point. Okay. So until you know what you're gaining, it will feel restrictive. Right? Until you know what you're gaining, it will feel restrictive. I was, um, I was walking in Sydney, Australia, where there's basically hardly any, very, very few observant Jews. And I was start, just had started keeping Shabbat. And I was walking against the traffic, walking because, like on the sidewalk, because I was walking because it's Shabbat. But I was so self-conscious and embarrassed. Like I thought everyone knows I'm Jewish and observing Shabbat and they're all judging me. That's what I thought, right? No one there would even know I'm Jewish and observing at all, even if I'm wearing a skirt. Doesn't, and no one would for sure know I'm keeping Shabbat just going walking along the walk. Right? But it was all my self-consciousness. And I remember like kind of like trying to rush to get through the, the street so you know, I could just get through this part because I was like embarrassed. So I was embarrassed of who I was and what I was doing in a way, on some level internally, right? And at some point, I'm like, what am I doing? 
I remember just kind of catching a long shot of myself. You ever, you ever felt that you've ever seen that yourself from a long shot? What am I doing? Like, what am I doing? I was like, I love Shabbat. I chose this. I, can, I value this. This is why I'm doing it. I don't feel forced to do it. I, I like it. I just didn't want anyone else to see me do it. But at some point, that pressure got too much. I was like, I love what I'm doing. And I realized what I'm doing when I'm walking is I'm actually guarding Shabbat. Like, I'm guarding it because I value it. And just in my own life, in my own head, I had nothing to do with anyone else. And I remember I totally shifted my stance and I just walked in a t such a different way. I let go. I let go of like needing to be something for other people, right? And needing to fit in and needing to, what if the judging, right? It's a very, it's a very um, female thing. I'll pause while the males leave the room. I can't disclose our secrets. Um, <laughs> Noah's laughing. It's a very, um, it's a very female thing to give up your power for approval. Yeah? So the biggest power a woman has is being willing to disappoint another. Once you're willing to disappoint, they'll be disappointed. Okay. You've owned a certain power. Bless you. Thank you. And your family and friends. Right? <laughs> that you've owned a certain part of, your, of yourself that you haven't owned before that. Okay. Keep going. But once you disappoint someone else? When you're willing to disappoint. Meaning when you don't, you don't define yourself and your behavior by making sure everyone's approving of you. You give a part of yourself away when you do that. You betray yourself, potentially, because there's many things other people won't approve of you for that you believe in, that you're willing to give away because you want their approval. So women do this a lot, more than men. And once you're willing to disappoint someone, like, okay, they'll be disappointed, but like, there's nothing I can do about it. This is too important to me. I stand up for my own values. You're, firstly, it's liberating. And secondly, you realize they end up respecting you more. Right. Totally. Okay, I could tell you examples after examples of my secular cousins that said I'm crazy and I'm religious and I'm so ortho you're so orthodox aren't you Jackie like that's what they said to me like that right like you're so orthodox right you're really extreme right I'm like yeah I'm really extreme why because what they want validation that they're normal and I'm extreme fine I'll give them validation yeah sure you want to think of me as extreme fine and then as soon as I did that and they, I wasn't putting it on them then all of a sudden they were like so can you get the mezuzah from Israel <laughs> like, can you help us with the wedding ketubah? These are real, real conversations. Can you? What happens after you die? <laughs> like, these were real questions. Once, like, I'm normal and they're, ex I'm extreme and they're normal, and we're all happy about that, right? Like, then it's fine. So again, just not letting it affect you. Like, I, you can think I'm whatever you want to think. I, I don't have to make. No, I'm not extreme. I, like, if I started doing that whole thing, then it'd be a power struggle. Well, then who's normal? If you're not, if you're normal, then I'm not. They would think, right? And vice versa. So okay, I'll, I'll be extreme. Right, but they respect it. Because I'm standing for something, and most people stand for nothing. Right? If you don't stand for it, what is it? If you don't stand for something, you stand for it. You, you don't stand for anything. Okay. So what does it look like to grow healthily? And then we're going to come back and tie it to the chayrus thing. I'm not going to go through all of this. It's way too intense. That's for part two. Okay. Um, by the way, just a side note. Um, there was someone told me about today. There is a guy in the the news, Johnny Maziel. Maziel, he's a football yeah football player. Do you read about this? Everyone was talking about it. I was just talking about them. right some football player. I don't even know which team, whatever. But it was like a whole big thing, where he was like a super, super, superstar at football, and he. 
he was rose to fame, fortune, like money, like you name it. He like made it on every level. Young kid though, followed his desire to the nth degree, and has literally de nearly destroyed himself with domestic violence, arrests, drug addiction, like you name it. Now, he now got dropped from. It's really sad. Now he got dropped from the football team, and his pe his father is begging the public to convince him to go to rehab because he's scared he won't be alive in a year for his 23rd birthday because of the drugs. That's the extreme example of what it looks like if you just follow your desires and you have the means to, right? If I just follow my desires with no filter, that's what it can, it can lead, it leads us out of the world, out of, out of, you know, like that's not, at some point he had to sacrifice those desires for something higher. At some point and he didn't do it, he didn't know how to do it, right? Um, okay, so what does it look like, healthy growth? There's a certain internal equilibrium that we have that is very um, crucial to preserve as you're growing, no matter what it is. It doesn't have to be with observance. It could be with anything, anything new you're doing in life. So what do we see? We see 1st of January, everything spikes New Year's Eve. New Year's resolution, right? Gym memberships go up. Diets go up. Everything spikes up. Like everyone wants to change. 1st of February, they found statistically everything's back to normal. Everything. That's soon. That's in one month. Why? Because they took on too much. On some level, they would have felt suffocated. On some level, they would have felt restricted. I'm never eating chocolate ever again. What do you mean? Like, it's got nothing to do with Judaism. This is about a process of growth. This is why you see this class is so important because it comes up in relation to Judaism because Judaism is about growth and change. But it's really got, it could be to do with anything, anything growth oriented, right? You hear? It's, very, it's about really how do I address my own growth? So, you have to grow in baby steps. It's not just a nice, cute idea. If you don't, you will die, literally. I mean, if you don't, you will just drop anything you want to gain. Right? You can't sustain it for too long. Why? Because we have an inner equilibrium that must be sustained. So the, it, from a spiritual perspective, why does it work that way? It's fascinating. Rav Volba was a rabbi of a rabbi of mine, and he was specialized in internal growth and change, Musser. And he was flown into Lebanon after the 1967 war because all the IDF soldiers were in there post-war, and they'd seen so many miracles in the war, they were freaked out. True story. All the these IDF Israeli soldiers had seen so many miracles in the Lebanon war, they were freaked out and they wanted to fly a rabbi in quick smart to address them on it. They flew in revolver. It was just post-war, so everything was still tense. But they flew him in on, on a dinky little Israeli plane, just him and the pilot, and they flew in over Lebanon border. And as they did, they did a nosedive 180 degrees down. And Revolver's like, what on earth is going on, right? He goes up to the pilot as they're nose diving down, and all of a sudden, the pilot flies low to the ground, horizontal again. He's like, what are we doing? And the pilot says, oh, well, we're in an Israeli plane, and it's post-war, so I'm worried that they're going to pick up, the radar is going to pick up that an Israeli plane has entered Lebanon, and we're going to be in serious trouble. So I just did a nose dive down underneath the radar of the Lebanese, and now we're flying low to the ground inside, the, inside Lebanon. They won't know we've entered. And he realized that this is what happens with our own growth and our own Yetzirah. He says, when you keep your inner equilibrium, and I say, oh, I like Shabbat, I can't do all Shabbat, I'm just going to take on candles. Oh, yeah, but I like prayer, but I can't do all the prayer, I'm just going to start talking to God. Or, yeah, like, I, I don't, can't do all of modesty, but, like, I'm just going to, like, not be as physical straight away with a guy. Or, like, and, and start taking on baby steps. Then all of a sudden... I end up in, a, in, a, in another place and it's like I've gone underneath the radar of my own Yetzirah and it doesn't even register that I'm growing and changing and it leaves me alone. 
So the idea of growing in baby steps is that it goes underneath your own radar. You don't create an inner tension at all. And your Yetzirah, everyone know what Yetzirah means? No? No? There's two drives in us, spiritual drives. One drive is for good and one drive is for self-sabotage, disconnection, like just doing whatever I feel like doing. And at any given time, I, can f I have to fight these drives. Do I want something higher or do I want something that feels good now? Right? We're always faced with this challenge. So sometimes when I take on something that's too lofty and too high, I create an inner tension that can sometimes have a rebound effect, which is what the January 1, everything spikes, and February 1, not doing it anymore. No, I just want sugar. <laughs> Ever try to diet and then you binge? You just binge. You Why do you binge? Because it's the rebound effect of trying to do something, right? Right, right, right. Why? Because I'm trying to hold myself. Maybe you're going too far with the diet and you can't handle it and you rebound, right? There was a story in Israel that was terrible. Again, it was another extreme and there was definitely other things going on here that don't make sense, meaning in her own, in her own struggles. But she, there was one girl within one year became completely religious, top to bottom, like as if she grew up religious. She walked, talked, looked, dressed like a religious from birth person, which was way, A, that's not even necessary, and B, everyone was trying to say, slow, slow down, slow down, slow down, and she wouldn't slow down. And she just totally uprooted who she was, like her sense of self, gone, obliterated. She just became this other persona that wasn't her, but what do you do? You create that inner rebound to such an extreme, the next year she was a prostitute in New York. Now, I don't think many people would do that because of other morals, right, and values in themselves. So other stuff was going on for her, but they really, really tried to get her back. She did damage for generations now in her own family. They, tried, they even spoke to the person who was managing her clients, you know, and, I mean, they tried, they really tried. But that, that, that inner rebound, sometimes you can go further negatively than what you would have done had you not pushed yourself so hard. It's very important to treat your inner equilibrium in the right way. When I when when I I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll end with a story and I'll, not you know I'll end about we'll we'll wrap up after the story but I um when I was becoming observant I was in Neve in in Israel for about three or four months and I was wearing skirts because that's what you do I didn't own a skirt when I went at all I was a pants girl right so I didn't I just wore skirts out of respect because I was there so I wore skirts and I didn't mind it it was it didn't feel that suffocating I kind of liked how I felt a bit feminine like I liked it. And when I came back, so I thought I'm going to wear skirts because that's what I've been doing for three or four months. So I'm not going back now, right? So I got home and I grew up in Sydney, Australia, which is a gorgeous country on the beach. And it was summer and I was driving past the beach and I looked out and it was green, aqua green water and the sand was golden. And it was calling my name, like literally. In about maybe 3.5 seconds, I was in my hot pink bikini on that beach in front of everyone and I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. And I had this little voice in my head going, skirts in Jerusalem, bikini in Sydney, like, hello, like, you hypocrite, who are you? Like, what are you doing, right? Skirts, bikini. And not only did I not care, I loved it. It was so familiar to me. I had grown up that way, right? I was enjoying it, not just one day, not just two days, but maybe three weeks. I did that every day. Fine. And I was in what they say in Egypt, right? Denial. Get it? <laughs> uh, anyway, feel free to use the joke around Passover time. It's really funny. Um, so, <laughs> thank you so much. I'll pay you later. Um, so, Denial. So, I, I was just ignoring it. Anyway, so at a later date, um, 
I actually got a call from my old TV network when I was when I was doing Today Show, and they said, "Oh, we'd like you to host a new TV series on dating." And uh, I was like, "Oh, that's so funny! I just came back in the country. Did you know?" They're like, "No." So I didn't know if I should do it because I was meant to go back to Israel, but this would be like tons of money for a short period of time that could fund me in Israel later on. So I was like, I, I think I should stay, but I'm not sure. Let me call my rabbi. So I called my rabbi, Rabbi Kellerman at the time, and he answered in Israel, which was miraculous because he traveled all the time. He just picked up the phone like, hello. I'm like, hello? Like, this is bizarre. And I said, hi. And I, just, I wasn't going to mention the, the swimming thing. I was talking about the TV thing, right? So I talked to him about the TV. Should I stay? Should I not? We debated it. He said I should stay and do it and get the money. I said, fine, okay, thanks so much, bye, right, and went to hang up. And he goes, wait a minute, how's everything else going? Uh-oh. And you know when someone asks you the right question? Okay, don't say it. I, I quoted it to show that. Did you really? <laughs> and it goes right into that place where you've been in denial and all of a sudden it wakes you up, right? This is what happened when he asked me that because I had to confront myself. I literally burst into tears, like literally, poor guy, right, this poor rabbi. And I was like, oh, my God, I went swimming in my bikini. Right? Like, you don't have to say that to a rabbi. But anyway, so, and he's, and he's like, that's fine. We Jews love swimming. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, I was with guys everywhere, and I didn't care. I said, so obviously, like, something's wrong with me because I really didn't care. You know? And he said, we love swimming. Don't worry. Jews don't amputate. And I'm like, what? No, you don't understand. Like, I don't. He goes, Jews don't amputate. It's too gory, graphic, and violent. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, listen, in one or two or three years from now, you'll, you'll want to move towards Judaism. Right now, you're wanting to move towards Judaism because it's positive and because you enjoy it and because you're inspired by it. And in one or two or three years from now, you'll look back and you, might, and you won't be necessarily swimming like this with other people around you, with men around you, dressed like that. Not because you've amputated it out of your life, but because you gently drifted to another place. And he says, Jews don't amputate, we just drift. And it was probably one of the most valuable pieces of advice I ever heard at that time. I said, what, you mean I can go swimming? And he just laughed. Like, he just, don't worry about it. Yeah, like, just, just be yourself and keep growing. And you'll find that in one or two or three years, you might not ever be there, but never because you stopped yourself one day and said, that's it, I can never go swimming again. Like, it should never feel like that. It's too gory, it's too graphic, it's too violent. We don't just rip out limbs from our lives like that. That's not what growth looks like. It's not healthy. It's not sustainable. It's not graceful, right? We Jews don't amputate. We just drift. It was such a beautiful frame and way of looking at it. And that's how it should feel. If you give up something, it's because you value something else that you want in your life. You're not just giving up things in your life and standing there miserable, restricted and trapped. You hear? So it's one thing to understand the system and understand Judaism and understand the halacha and understand that it's true and given by God and you have to ask all your questions and you have to research that and everything. But once you even get to the place where, okay, I think I believe this system's true, doesn't mean you suddenly absorb the whole system and try and integrate that into your currently can't, right? So, okay, I'm here. This is where I'm at. What's the first baby step that I want to bring into my life as I am now? Not throw myself out and become observant, right? But I'm here. Let me bring something in to my life. I like prayer, I like to want to learn more about the Torah, like the stories, I want to learn Hebrew, I want to learn, right, modesty, I want to learn more about marriage, I want to learn more about, and I'll learn through the thing I'm drawn to. The only danger is if you just like to learn for the sake of learning and you never apply anything into action. That's where we get stuck the other way. Your Yetzirah, the part of you that likes to sabotage, will, will do the other way. Oh, just keep learning. 
right? You don't have to do anything different. But we know that if you get inspiration and education and you ever put it into action, it's nearly worthless. If you are just float, coasting through life and not, your life has never changed in actuality and practice in any way, you haven't changed. And the job of a Jew is to grow, always. Where, where you're at to the next step, whatever that means for you. We can discuss one-on-one -on -one what that means for you, right? It's, it, it can be very clear. What are you inspired by? What are you drawn to? What do you always feel guilty about doing because you know inside you're better than that? Those things. I remember being out in clubs when I was younger. I mean, after I'd learned about Torah, looking around at certain people in my life and going, what am I doing here? This is not where I want to be. This is not the people I want to surround myself with. I'm sure you've had those experiences in life. This is what I'm, not that you're arrogantly looking at them, but you're like, I'm better than this. This is not what I want my life to be, right? That feeling, because that's yours. It's inside you already, right? This is already yours. It's not me putting it on you. It's already resonating inside of you. Okay, we're just going to get back to the Chayrus and the Chayrus and we'll finish. So what's the connection between freedom and engraved? Getting back to Amanda's idea of dance. I danced for 20 years. Close enough to 16. And if you go into, I don't know, when I went to the ballet when I was little and I watched the ballerinas fly across the stage, right? They would look effortless. Anyone been to a ballet? Like it's just stu like stunning. They can put their leg here and just hold it for like a minute, right? They can fly across the stage. I do, do the fouettes and then just like fall like an elephant on the floor when it looks so easy and then I try and I couldn't do it when I was little. And if we walked into, they looked so like free as a bird, right? They looked free as a bird. They looked also very unique and individual. Each ballerina had their own style, their own expression. Yet there was a mastery there, no question, an excellence. If we walked into the rehearsal the next morning of that company rehearsing, what would we see in the rehearsal? People messing up. People messing up, maybe. Maybe messing up, maybe not. Maybe they perfected the steps. But how, what, what would they look like? All different. Huh? Different. Would they look different? Have you ever seen, like, rehearsals? Have you ever seen... Sweaty, gym clothes, and... But they all stand at the bar, and they all do the same exercise. And they all go like this, and they all go like this, and they all go like... And, they, and, the, and every single exercise is identical with where they're putting their head and where they're doing the thing. Everyone do five kicks to the front, five kicks to the side, right? Over and over again, over and over again. If you go into a sport, a sporting uh, event, football, and you watch a team play in perfect unison harmony. Harmony. Every person in their own position. But you go into the training the next day. What do you usually see? Sprints, sit-ups, push-ups. Everyone doing the same thing over and over again. Developing the same muscles and the same strength and the same mastery. You go into an artist who draws the most unique expressions from them. From their essence with, with, with art. And you go into an art class and they're doing the same things over and over again to practice, perfect the strokes. You, anyone a musician here? Anyone play any music instruments? No one? Not one person? That's so interesting. Usually we have one, right? If you look at musicians and you go to an orchestra and they play a symphony, as every instrument is playing together in perfect harmony. They all sound different, but they play uniquely together in perfection, right? Usually, hopefully. If you go into rehearsal, up and down, scales, 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 perfecting, perfecting the, the art over and over and over again. So what do we see? That in order to strive for excellence, in order to bring out my unique individuality, to be able to express myself through mastery of myself, I must engrave into myself over and over and over again the rules, the discipline, the practice, the, the charis, over and over again, I must engrave it into my body so that I can then become free and express myself 
with that discipline and my unique individuality. So too, with Judaism, I have to engrave what the moral and spiritual conduct is of the Torah as a set of instructions, as a pathway. I have to learn the pathway. I'm learning the pathway. Let me learn the pathway, pathway over and over again so that I can integrate it into my being and then express my unique individuality in that way, through my own way, using it as a discipline, right? So it turns out that Judaism and the Torah becomes a divine choreography of where to put your put your this hand when and when to move that way, that way. And if someone asks you for money, you should put your hand in your pocket and give. And it becomes a unique don't hold hold don't speak gossip because you'll break that relationship and honor your mother and father. Like it becomes a divine choreography of a discipline that we're studying to learn. Did I start ballet on point shoes? No. I started with little pink netting and going like this. Right? That's what I did when I was five. That was a real step I just showed you. That was a real step, right? Because why? Because that practices, it practices for doing pirouettes when you're spotting like that. Remember? Right? And then you get up to pirouettes and fouettes and shomunagia and like, like maybe. Not everyone goes that direction to that level, right? But you don't start there. You don't look at that and go, oh my gosh, like, right? So if you, if you want to strive for excellence, you have to learn a discipline. No matter what art, no matter what form, no matter anything, we relate to this. In the, and this is like a no-brainer, no pain, no gain. I have to sacrifice certain things because I value winning the gold medal for the Olympics so people get up at four in the morning and they train for ice skating and gymnastics and all sorts of sports. And they train the discipline and we admire them because they sacrifice, because they stood up for something, because they, they want excellence. So why on earth would we not have that as a human being, as a way of life? Yeah, the concept of that comes from the Torah. It's just we think it goes the other way, and we relate to it from the, this level. But it really comes from the Torah down, right? So if we want to strive for excellence, we can approach it by baby steps, preserving our sense of self, understanding the discipline, starting in our own way, becoming righteous as righteous as we can be, and internalizing it, integrating it, and expressing it through our unique individuality. And then it feels amazing. It feels incredible because you feel like you're really actualizing your potential and you have realistic goals and realistic expectations and you feel a million bucks. There's no, there's no feeling that can replace that feeling. So I would be more than happy to sit with any of you anytime one-on-one -on -one, and really like talk through a plan, like where you're at, what you feel the next steps are, baby steps, what's doable, what's not doable. Yeah, or if you want to learn something in this area, that area, we can make sure that that happens for you. And... Um, I'm happy to continue the conversation. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.